Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 195 with my guest Maria Anna Klebus. Uh, Maria is from Poland and she studied with Svet Stoyanov down at Miami of Florida and also went to Yale University for her grad work. And um, I'd been seeing Maria in various Yale posts and it was just nice to get to catch up and get to know her as well. Uh, she's a power lifter in Poland <laughs> in addition to being a percussionist and um, has a duo with a good friend of hers uh, called Percussion Infinity, or Infinity Percussion, excuse me. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It was, again, it was get to, nice to get to know someone from scratch uh, who I had never met before, and um, those are always my favorite ones. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. This is Maria Anna Kalibus. Enjoy. Bye. So let's gavel this to order. Uh, Maria Klebus, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Uh, Klebus is uh, correct. Klebus. Yeah. All right. And are you, you're Polish? Is that correct? Yeah, okay. that is correct. Klebus. All right. And um, I I apologize for spelling your name wrong on the uh, the invite. Oh, nice. I'm 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 just messing up all over just as a, as our start here. Um, well, I, I really appreciate you you doing this with me today, Maria. And um, for many reasons, one, I know that you have we have some similarities in our in our sort of path. Um, I mean, I'm not from Poland, but um, you did go to Yale, and I, I, you know, I've kept track of the folks in the studio there since I left, and I know all of the guys, and so like we're kind of always curious about folks yeah. who, who came through the program after us, and sort of what your experience was like. And I'd love to chat with you about that, but before, we, and I want to know a little bit about your background. But I'm kind of curious, what prompted you to reach out to do this podcast? I know I put a note out on Facebook that was mm -hmm. like. I'm tired of face. I'm tired of comment threads, and I'd like to talk to people face to face. I'm kind of just always curious. What prompted you to reach out? No, I love the idea, and actually, as soon as I saw it, um, first that popped into my mind was that, I mean, for some reason we we became friends on Facebook um, because, you, as you said, our paths were kind of crossing the same uh, way, just not at the same time. Mm. and I always saw that we had so many things in common, like obviously playing percussion and, uh, you know, studying at Yale, but also uh, lifting weights, you know, and stuff. And I don't know, I just always, um, like, wished that we had met in person, mm -hmm. and it just, like, never happened. And I was just really curious to to chat with you and, um, to meet you so especially now that you know zoom calls blew up more than ever because I know that you've been doing the podcast for a while mm -hmm. but now it's kind of like everybody got used to this way of communication mm -hmm. and I was just thinking why not like that's a great excuse to chat with you finally well good I, I appreciate you doing that and I, I you know I'm always shocked at how few people um actually do reach out to chat and then it, it's i a, think they're shy well yeah and you know but well but people aren't shy on comment threads that's the thing oh, like, that's you know true. people have no problem being absolute monsters on a comment thread and but as soon that's as you get so face true. face to face you know i've started being like if, if somebody gets on a comment thread and starts like really going to town I will just be like, I'd really prefer to have you come just talk with me face to face on the podcast. One thing is to write some type something out, but when you actually hear your say speaking the same words, then you realize that maybe some things are just too far and completely unnecessary, and maybe you wouldn't be capable to actually say them out loud. As and of course, we're not speaking. Uh, per se face to face, but I am seeing your face and you are seeing mine. And this is also very different than just typing something out and feeling mm -hmm. like you have this uh, veil, you know, separating you from the uh, listener. I feel like, you know, I, I, I get the, I understand the argument around like everybody has a voice now and I, 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 I want to hold two thoughts. I want to hold, like, I support that. Everybody should have their voice be heard. On the other hand, um, there's a point at which you need to take ownership of your voice and then take it to the next step, which is having a face-to-face -face conversation with somebody because, you know, tone and, and anyway, that's that's my own soapbox. But um, Maria, can you just take me back to like baby Maria and like what, what got you into playing percussion and sort of, you know, what landed you at, at Yale and those sorts of things. But like, let's let's back up to the beginning and tell me a little bit about yourself. 
Uh, well, uh, so yes, I am from Poland, but uh, technically I was born in the States. Mm. I was born in California, mm-hmm. um, kind of by accident, because my family happens to be in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, obviously, I don't really remember that time, because uh, when I was maybe a year and a half old, um, my whole family moved back to Poland. And so why were I they why were they in California just out of curiosity? Well, my um as far as I know my uh dad got offered a job there at a university. He's a, a mathematics professor and computer sciences etc. So he got offered a job at a university and it was, you know, a really great opportunity that my mom and my two siblings um followed him and they just lived there for 2 years until his contract was up. And then they uh, went back to Poland. Okay. And so do you have two passports as a result? Yes. Oh, yes. wow. Okay, and good. this is amazing. And it has been very helpful throughout the times of um, that I was living in the States mm-hmm. because um, I obviously had a lot of foreign friends. And mm-hmm. I have seen like the struggle. Um, that they were dealing with either it was about just simply coming to the States, but also uh, mainly being able to stay after finishing Mm -hmm. the studies, uh, dealing with these kind of working visas Mm -hmm. or also, for example, getting a job while you're at a university, because when you have just a student visa, you have limited options. And I have a few friends that were forced to go back um, to their home country Mm -hmm. uh, after studying because they were unable to legally stay in the States. And so I'm very grateful for not having to worry about that. Well, I know when I was in school, um, I mean, just a little background about myself. I mean, before I went to Yale, I came from, I mean, I'm from Ohio initially. And, you know, I grew up in a very small town, not a whole lot of people from anywhere other than Dover, Ohio. You know, not many foreign, I didn't run across any like Asian folks, like there was one Jewish kid in town, like it was just a very small town. And so the first person I ever met where like those were even an issue, like it just never dawned on me that that was a thing was Ayano Katoka from, uh, she teaches at UMass and she was a student at Yale when I was there. And I remember her talking about, um, needing to find, she needed a job in order to stay. And I was like, what do you mean you need a job in order to stay? Like you play, you're, you're a badass murder player and you're an awesome drummer. Like, and I am, you know, I'm here. Like, what do you mean? And so she had, she had to explain to me what all that stuff was. And I was like, Oh, you know, as a 19 year old or 22 year old kid or whatever, um, you just don't, some of us, you know, it just never crosses your, your mind that that would yeah. be a thing. So anyway, just, I'm glad that you, you don't, you don't particularly have to worry about those, those specific issues. No. And I treat it as a, uh, I treated it uh, as an enormous privilege mm-hmm. um, and just honestly, pure luck uh, that it had happened to me because honestly, for half of my life, um, I didn't really think about it twice because I never, it, the thought of living in the States didn't really cross my mind mm-hmm. until I already started my studies and I met Svet. Mm-hmm. And this was when I met him and I knew that he had just started teaching in um, at the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. This was the first time that I actually, the thought crossed my mind. And in that moment, um, because actually... Um, so in this in this moment when I wanted to go, this actually was very helpful that I had this passport because um, after I met him, uh, he reached out to, to me a few months later um, about uh, a suggestion for me to come and study with him. He mm-hmm. had he said that he would help me with a scholarship to be able to come there mm-hmm. and all of this. And so after a couple of months, I decided to go and do it, but. At this point, it was already, I think, maybe March, and I wanted to come the following semester. Mm-hmm. And as I found out in this moment, in the United States, the application process happens way, way earlier. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. in Europe, oftentimes you do auditions uh, in June, for example, to mm. start the school in October, mm. right? So just a few months before. So often, or, or some schools even have the auditions in September. So just a month before the school year starts, okay. right? All right? So in this moment, 
I realized that, man, like I made this decision now, but it's a bit too late to apply. And I really want to go there as soon as possible. I don't want to waste my time not being able to be there. Mm -hmm. And so after talking to Sve, because he said, you know, like, um, I would uh, love to accept you for the semester, but there are certain rules at a university that they just don't allow me uh, to accept you. And with the music school, you cannot also start from the spring semester. You have to wait an entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I didn't have a problem that I needed to be accepted in the studies to get a visa, I was able to go there um, the, the following semester. So right after the summer and for one year, I was technically not enrolled in the studies, mm. but the dean of the School of Music and Sved had allowed me to practice there. And I was taking lessons from Sved basically for free because I was not paying the tuition yet uh, because I was unable to, to be enrolled. But Sved and the dean of the School of Music were so kind mm. to let me start basically with the... Um, with the, the percussion studies already there. So I played in some ensembles. I had chamber music, solo lessons um, for a whole year. Mm, mm. And this was written. So basically because of this, I spent actually five years in Miami, not four, mm-hmm. because then I started the studies year after. Right. So this came in very handy that I had this passport there. And for one year, I, I didn't have to worry. Well, that's that's some. Well, I'm, it's nice to hear some of that backstory. I mean, I, I remember. I know that you went to Miami or you studied with Svet in Miami, but I didn't know about any of that backstory. Um, like, well, when you were in high school and like growing up, what got you into drums in particular? Um, I was very bad at piano. <laughs> that was basically <laughs> kind of what let me do it because I, I went to uh, in, in Poland and in some European countries, we have this system of music schools that it's not like an extracurricular activity, but rather um, you have a school which is like a full-time music school. So I'm doing um, subjects like Polish, English, math, geography, music theory, music history. Mm-hmm. Uh, instru- so every so every student in my school was a music student. Everybody played some instrument. We all took music classes. And this lasted for 12 years. Mm-hmm. It was like a full-time music school combined with elementary school and mm-hmm. high school and everything. And uh, I started with piano, mm-hmm. um, just like half of my class. Because I think 30 out of 60 kids in my year were uh, started with playing piano. Mm-hmm. And then by the time we were finishing high school, only one person finished in piano <laughs> because of the, you know, natural selection. <laughs> and uh, so after about four years, um, because at, at the end of each semester, mm-hmm. at the end of each year, you have an exam. You have to play some stuff on your instrument. You have to uh, show that you're making progress, etc. And so um, at some point, um, my teacher and the, like, the committee that was uh, taking these exams realized that I'm not making um, big enough progress. So they suggested to me that maybe I would like to uh, quit the music school and just mm. try something else. Mm. Or maybe I would like to try some other instrument because they were often suggesting that if a kid was not good enough on... Uh, cello they would suggest the bass because they didn't have enough bass students um etc so um i basically i did some research like with other kids who were playing other instruments and i found because my piano teacher was quite horrible um she was very brutal Mm. and i really hated um these lessons Mm. i Mm. i don't really react well on negative um mm. like reinforcement and she was you know screaming and like almost beating me all the time this was this you know rough eastern european school. <laughs> i mean i don't want to i don't want to reinforce any stereotypes but you know the the few times that i've been to eastern eastern europe uh and to russia i've been to russia twice been to poland a few times latvia um lithuania like there is a there is a different sort of uh 
teacher student relationship sometimes in and again this is not i mean same exists in the united states the relationship between mm-hmm. bob and his team i, I kind of want to talk to you about that too like mm-hmm. the relation there's it's a unique thing depending on and relationships between teachers and students in california is different than it is in ohio you know like but in eastern europe i feel like and this is but this isn't something that just sort of like eastern europeans woke up one day and were like we're going to be hard on our students like this is like a thousand years of like cold weather and wars and czars and you know german invasion and like all of this stuff is just like if i was if i was a teacher in eastern europe i i could understand a little tiny bit why you might have that mentality now it doesn't it doesn't abdicate you of your responsibility not to be an abusive teacher but the approach is different and i'm curious like was she an outlier? Like, is she somebody who was like just a particularly bad teacher or is that she was just a bad example of that culture of teaching? Well, she, I had, I kind of had a feeling like even already as a child, because, you know, I started with her when I was six or seven years old. And, um, I already back then had a feeling like she hates children. Like she <laughs> okay. hates music. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like right. why would you be so mean and horrible to me if you like didn't hate me? And because I just met her, I just assumed like you must hate old children. You know, <laughs> like it was really bad. And she was actually not the worst in my school because there was this one teacher who was actually physically abusive. Oh, yeah, and she, to this day, she teaches at the school. I think that she's like 2000 years old already at this point. <laughs> and she's just as abusive and mm-hmm. just as horrible as she was the day I was uh, studying there. She used to like, if you would, if you made a mistake, she would like slap the piano lid on your fingers, you know, just like crush your hands. Well, this like, is, I mean, I, I, there's that movie Whiplash that came out have, yeah. and it's, I, I mean, I feel like I've had, I, there were moments of that where I'm like, yeah, I saw a tiny bit of that, but in the percussion world, I feel like there's just less competition in the piano world. It's pretty brutal. I mean, you don't get to walk on stage at the with you know the New York Phil and miss a note. Mm-hmm. But I do. <laughs> you know, I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to get up there and be like flower pots, steel drums, <laughs> and metal pipes. Look, and I hit a wrong one, and you didn't even know, and you don't even care because I'm just here going bonk bonk. You know, like. But pianists, like you're playing Liszt and you're playing Chopin and you're doing these things that like you can't a note. Everybody knows because everybody knows this rep. And it's over. I mean, you've got mm-hmm. now, here's the problem. Like, I think pianists 300 years ago didn't have those issues. So drummers 200 years from now are not, are not going to have the same luxury that maybe you and I have where mm-hmm. this is so new. And there's like, there's a lot of, you know, but when some, when somebody has played, I don't know, you know, uh, Vignal, for example, I mean, you all have, I mean, Svet, Bob, everybody's been in the sort of ground floor of that. 150 years from now, there's going to be a right and a wrong way to play Alejandro Vignal. And I feel like you all, myself included, we were just sort of like, let's try this, you know, like. Yes. And, and <laughs> so anyway, I'm not, I'm, I really want to be careful here not to sort of uh, endorse an abusive teacher mentality. Mm-hmm. But I think in the piano world, it. It is a slightly different thing than percussion. So I'm kind of glad that you had a bad teacher because I think it actually, if you were, if you had gone on to play piano, like you and I never would have met. You never would have met. Yeah, but but actually her abusiveness led me to choose percussion because I was doing some research at school and Mm -hmm. asking, you know, about different instruments, different teachers. And I found out that apparently the percussion teacher is like super nice. You know, mm. and so I went on to meet him, mm. and he was indeed just so nice. Like he didn't yell at me once. You know? <laughs> That's amazing how far that goes. You know, and it was like, yeah, I actually have fun doing this. You know, like it's not like I hate music. It's just I was so miserable practicing piano because I just associated it with this, uh, you know, person that just like hates me. And because I I was also taking ballet lessons from when I was very, very young. Mm. So at this moment, I was kind of thinking, should I go to ballet school? Like, and ballet school is like famous in Poland for being also super rough. You I know, just, like this is 
abusive and abusive. And I was, I got to the point that I was thinking like, maybe that's going to be easier. To stay. I just watched a whole, uh, my wife and I watched this documentary on the Balanchine sort of ballet process in New York and like the Balanchine schools and how they like the sort of grooming from young age to when they get to be and just like that whole process and you kind of age out of it. And like this, your whole, like your toes and like, the shoes you have to make, like all of this stuff. And there are just these tiny little people running around obsessed with, mm. you know, Swan Lake and all this stuff. And I'm just, mm. it's, it's a, it just, again, like, I feel like I went through the ringer as a student at Yale, but like not mm. anything close to what these like yeah. seven year old girls are going through. It's just different. It's yeah. just different kind of pressure. But yeah, I'm glad that I met this teacher and that he was so nice to me because he brought back, you know, this, uh, love for music that I had in me since I was, since I remember, basically. Uh, because I remember, you know, my sister went to the same music school I did, and she had this 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 physically abusive teacher. And she survived with her four years, and when, because I'm much older, when I said that I want to go to the music school, my sister was like, no, don't mm. do it, mm. you will suffer, this is a horrible experience, you will not have any childhood, you know. And I was like, no, I want to go. I want to play music, you know. And I was so motivated and into it. And so I'm glad that this percussion teacher was able to bring back the spirit. Um, because otherwise, yeah, I, I would end up going like a completely different path. And all of these things wouldn't have happened to me. Well, can I ask you, um, I mean, as you're talking about intense teachers and the different cultures between... Um, you know, Eastern European culture, and then coming to study in the United States. Um, when I was a student at the University of Akron, and there I was trying to figure out where to go to grad school, there was a handful of places I I was really into chamber music. I think, like I always said, my favorite my favorite instrument was uh, percussion ensemble. Like that was my that was my favorite instrument. And steel band, I've, of course, I have a whole room full of them. But like mm. those sorts of things were my my where. Like orchestral music was not my bag. I mm-hmm. I knew enough to be dangerous, but it was pretty clear it was not my thing. And remember playing like again, I was I knew enough to be dangerous, but I knew I was getting away with some stuff, so I was like, who am I gonna go study with? And Bob came through to give a class <clears throat> and um he had a reputation mm-hmm. that preceded. What him. kind of reputation actually back then did he have? Terrifying. Oh, really? Um, you know, things that, like, just, he was one of the few people. I mean, I f- like, when So comes to do a master class, I feel like we try real hard, or, I, it, or if, it, if it's just me as a teacher, like, I try real hard to be like, here's the truth, or here's what I'm hearing as the truth, and that doesn't mean you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. And, like, trying to, like, really walk that line of getting somebody, like, you know, you're just not playing the right note. That's the truth, you know? Mm -hmm. And Bob had this, like, he would strike fear in the hearts of people when he would come in the room. And, like, it was just terrifying. It just felt like every time he left, there was blood on the walls, you know? And I think his early... Well, because he came from that European... Yeah, I wonder if that that affected him, like, this all these years years in Europe. I think it did. I I didn't study with him real early on. I mean, I studied with him in 2004 to six. And Mm -hmm. um, at that time at Yale, he was teaching, he would come once a month. Um, I know that is slightly different now. Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, now he lives in Connecticut. So he's there all the time. And I think also by the time I went to study with him, you know, it often happens that with age, like these really hard people, they they get a bit softer. Mm-hmm. So I think that I got to um, there at the point that he already softened up a lot. <laughs> well, just like just as you were talking about, like Bob was one of the first people to ever just be like, "You, you sound terrible." <laughs> like, like you do know, like I, I think in one in one one lesson with me, I, I played Scheherazade or something, and I was like. <laughs> And I, you know, whatever, and I get done, and he's like, "Okay, no, it was Beethoven one, Timothy." I thought I'd nailed it, right? And I get done, and he's mm-hmm. like, "You're never gonna play timpani with an orchestra." Oh damn! And and he's like, "That's I've just taught enough timpanists mm-hmm. to know." And at the time, I f- remember feeling like, "You know what? Fuck you, bro." 
Like, yeah. like, like I'm here to like, you're supposed to teach me regardless. And, and I, and yeah. now as a 41 year old person, I, I, you know, I teach steel bands. You can look at a student who's playing and be like, if you continue on this path, chances are this isn't something you're going to do to make mm-hmm. money. Yeah. And that can always change. But that was the first time as a teacher, Bob, so anybody ever looked at me and just told me mm-hmm. like the raw truth. <laughs> and yeah. and that's not very common in the States as far as I, yes. in, in my experience. So like, I'm, I'm curious, did you have any, what was your experience like studying with Bob? Because you talk about these experiences with teachers who were, who had an abusive, I'm not, I don't want to imply that Bob was abusive, but hmm. he can ride you pretty hard. I understand that he, he was saying things in a harsh way that mm-hmm. it was not uh, pleasant to receive this kind of comments and they were not uh, sugar coated in any yes. way. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually it's funny how I realized that the States are different because when I came to Miami and I have to say that from the beginning with Svet and mm-hmm. Matthew Strauss, mm-hmm. I consider myself one of the luckiest people Mm. to study with these two because they had this, first of all, they, for me, they had this perfect combination of positive reinforcement with a realistic constructive criticism. Mm. Mm. Um, But on top of it, they were able to adjust their way of teaching to the needs of the student because everybody reacts differently to different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. And, um, for example, both of them, they realized that what pushes me is positive reinforcement. And of course, sometimes I need a slap, you know, like back to reality by, with harsh truths. But what was so funny to me was when, um, I first met Matt and, you know, I had some lessons with him Mm -hmm. and I thought that like, wow, no, he's like an honest guy, but you know, he's like, also really polite and really funny and when you do something well like he's extremely encouraging Mm -hmm. and then I would like hear other students say like oh my god Matt is so hardcore like he's so harsh like he's brutal you know like ah like I don't know like I just wanted to cry in a lesson with him like what he said was and I was thinking like wow like he's just honest like he's not harsh like he just tells you how it is at least in his opinion mm-hmm. and he doesn't go out of his way to say something mean mm-hmm. which I've had a really a share of of teachers that I have seen do that that they were just plain mean because I don't know they had a bad day and they wanted to take it out on a student you know yeah yeah and so I was thinking like man Matt is such a lovable person and like Sure, he can be harsh because he's honest. Um, but I never got that feeling that like, wow, this is like too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was interesting with Bob because he's also like on one side, he is very American to me in his way mm-hmm. of teaching because I think that I got him as a teacher in a very different time mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. a lot of you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I said, I think he softened up a bit because I always had an opinion that, you know, he's very good with words. He's very eloquent person. Um, and I felt like he is honest, but at the same time, he has a way with words to say something very harsh to you, but says it in a way that you thank him for it. Mm, Like you mm. feel good about yourself, even though you understand that he just like criticized you and said something really bad about you. But somehow the way he said it was like, I don't know if this is like criticism or a Mm. compliment, you know, like Mm, mm. maybe I'll say thank you. (laughs) I don't know. I, I, this is uh, my impression. Well, the, the thing too, that, that I will say and again, this just goes with getting to know people. Like I, I didn't really get to know Bob all that well until really as time after I left school. And it's like, you, I get to be, you know, I get to have experience teaching and play concerts and you, you learn a little bit of like, uh, like I remember Bob coming to a rehearsal for Vinyao actually. And I'm in grad school. Right. And you know, we're, it's the, one of the movements from a studios and like, mm-hmm. um, Bob comes into play and, something came off the rails and he turned around and looked at me and I was like, 
I was playing the hand drum and one of the marimba parts, right? And he turned, he just kept turning around and being like, hmm, Josh, I need your time to be better here. And I was like, okay, do it again. Hmm, Josh, buddy, your time's just really funky here. And it, t- it turns out that like, it, and so then Bob leaves the room and Svet, when we, when we get done, Bob leaves and he goes with Cecile somewhere and Svet turns around and he's like, we need to make that three, eight bar a two, eight bar because that's what Bob's doing. <laughs> and i was like oh okay all right he's just cutting off an eighth note that's why he feels like my time is bad and so we all just agreed to do that and then the next rehearsal i think bob comes in and he happens to have like by that point in the, the week later learned it right mm-hmm. and so we and so then svet was just like back to the original and we're like okay cool and like and i remember being really disappointed in bob in that moment and feeling like wait a minute he is a human being he makes mistakes What's up with that? Well, but here's the thing. He carries himself sometimes with this with this confidence that that that, you know. And so my expectations of him and now as a just now as a teacher, I you know, I run steel bands and I'm in there, you know, I, I coach a steel band in Trinidad of 140 players. I'm just like, come on, come on. And then they're they're just like, Can you show us how to play this part? And I'm like, sure. Oops. Like, <laughs> you know, there's a there's a point at which you're sort of bravado. You get out ahead of your skis. And and I remember that moment being very disappointed in Bob, but then realizing like, oh, yeah, this is what it's like to premiere music. Mm-hmm. Like Bob got this music last week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. And, I, and I now have been in that experience. It's like, oh, yeah. I know what it's like to play in the style of a piece for the premiere mm-hmm. because you just, you know, you dropped a few bars or whatever. Anyway, um, that and Bob's from Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that should tell you a lot of what you need to know about Bob and his like the moment I saw Bob, one of my other moments as, t- as a TA with Bob that was like very humbling and, and revealing was I did a lesson with him. We used to have our lessons at six in the morning because I liked I like to get up, not like I do. I don't like to do yeah. that now, but <laughs> but uh, we get we did the lesson. Then Cecile came and we were talking, and then she left. And as soon as she left the room, Bob turns to me and he's like, "I need you to go to Naples." I need you to get me a bag of French fries and cover it with mayonnaise. And I was like, what? And he's like, do not tell Cecile. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I need, yeah. he said, I need to see the bag greasy. And I was like, okay. And so I went to, I went to Naples and brought it back. And he just was like, <laughs> like just ate, ate an entire bag of mayonnaise fries. I was like, oh, yes, Takamitsu is important. Yes, Vignal. Yes, James uh-huh. Wood. But also mayonnaise on french fries and i was like yeah all right he's sometimes (laughs) such a crazy juxtaposition of this like because when you first meet him um like you really treat him as you said you know as this because he's a living legend you know i mean he created half of the rap for marimba and percussion you know like all you hear are just these stories you know of of incredible things that he have accomplished and on top of it, you meet him and he's so knowledgeable and eloquent and, and all of this stuff. And then gradually, while you get to know him, you realize that deep inside, he is still from the deep Texas. Mm-hmm. And he's just sometimes, you know, this like simple guy, you know, that just likes to eat crazy food you know like with his hands you know because of course when we go out with cecile to dinner he will eat his pizza with a fork and knife you know or something mm. and then you just forget <laughs> yeah and when cecile turns around he folds it in half and it's just like ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the um let me let me ask you just in terms of like you know one of the things that's that's being talked a lot talked about a lot right now is sort of representation in our field and what how the sort of diversity of our field diversity makeup of our field is and i'm kind of curious for you growing up you know when i was in high school there were like three girls in the percussion studio mm-hmm. and when i went to college same thing it was like my high school was like three out of 10 wow. college was like three out of 25 and then i got mm-hmm. to yale and there were five of us in the studio and two of them were women and so all of a sudden the like diversity makeup almost equaled out and mm-hmm. i'm I'm curious for you coming up, what was the, what was the sort of makeup of students whenever you were coming up through the system? And then what was your experience with that when you got, you know, in America, were were you noticing any differences Mm -hmm. there and, and how that stuff was dealt with? Yeah, I noticed a huge difference because actually I never realized that percussion was like, Oh, it's not very girly 
until I came to the States. Mm. Because honestly, um, I mean, this of course happens regardless where I am. Like when you meet a person who is not a musician, who is not a percussionist, and they meet me, and of course their comment is always like, oh, a girl in percussion? Like that's so um, different and unexpected. But honestly, um, starting to play percussion in Poland, where first of all, most of the orchestras um, that you go to, for example, are either half and half, mm. uh, female, male, or sometimes there's even more women in the orchestras, you know, which is a crazy juxtaposition here being in Austria, where like uh, Vienna Philharmonica uh, has, you know, just like a handful of women mm. and they started letting in women like only a few years ago. Mm, mm. And, uh, but especially in percussion in Poland, I have so many friends, uh, like colleagues, which are female in percussion. Mm. And from the moment that I started, it was always a lot of girls around me in every university in my school. Like there was just always a lot of women playing percussion. And um, also like the Radio Symphony Orchestra in my hometown had a female timpanist you know yeah. and all this and i see that there are such countries like for example also in bulgaria um there is a ton of female timpanists like holding mm. the the timpani position in mm. major orchestras all over the country um so it's not like in actuality it's not really a thing mm. of discrimination there um however uh, the representation is one thing. The treatment after that is another thing. Because mm, mm. Um, I won a position in an orchestra in Poland. And the first comment that I got, like, it was literally right after winning the audition. The section leader, like, wanted to speak to me after the, the audition, like, about the details, when we're going to sign a contract, etc. And he told me, even though... In the last round, I literally played excerpts on every instrument, including, you know, cymbals and stuff. He then came on to me and he said, but, you know, now you have the solo uh, percussion position here. You know, you're going to have to play things like cymbals, you know. And I'm like, yeah, you know, but cymbals are really heavy. So maybe start practicing. Like, man, I literally just played Tchaikovsky 4 in the final round, you know, like. And you were like, have you not seriously? Have you not seen my Instagram page? Like I can deadlift more than also, more than you can, probably. Also, and then one of my first gigs with them, um, we were playing some concerts and we received the music, and uh, we were decide the like uh, discussing the assignment of the parts, and some guy he was a substitute. And I wanted, we were playing some marches or, or something like this. And I wanted to play the cymbals. And he said like, oh no, Maria, let the guy play this part. You know, this is a lot of cymbal playing. And I look at this guy and he's skinny as a twig, you know, like <laughs> I could literally just like pick him up, you know, and throw him on the ground. And he's telling me that I'm not strong enough to play cymbals. Like, and I am the, the, the hired solo percussionist there, mm -hmm. and he's a substitute. And I'm like, why is this world upside down? You know, there's just like so many no-nos there, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. just so inappropriate from every perspective there is. Um, so sure, there is a big representation in Poland, but the treatment that I have received was not always uh, very accepting, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Is the, um, I mean, so how was the difference or what was the difference in the States? I mean, because I think. Um, I think the difference yeah. was that there was a smaller representation in the States. Like I have seen less percentage wise, mm -hmm. less women actually playing percussion. But in general, I don't think I've, I've ever, or at least I don't remember ever feeling discriminated. Like somebody was treating me that I cannot do something because I'm a girl. It, I'm, because most of the time when I'm here in Europe, the comments that I get are that I'm not strong enough. I'm not oh. strong enough to like move the marimba or I'm not strong enough to play cymbals, things like this. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the States, it has never happened to me. Mm. So I, I didn't feel really discriminated against ever from this perspective but also you know like maybe i was lucky i don't know how it's for other 
uh, females in percussion. Well, I think, I mean, everybody has a different experience and I, th- I don't think you should, you know, you can't speak for anybody else's experience other than your own. And, um, for me, again, in my experience, I'm listening to a man, like I don't, I, there's all the, the, the assumptions that come with that in terms of how I sort of am able to walk through society and not, I don't get cat called when I walk outside. I am of, I mean, one of, I listened to a podcast, uh, last year, uh, this comedian, Eliza Schlesinger from California, and she was talking with another, the co-host was a man and, and he was just like, what don't, what don't I get? Like, what am I missing about? Sorry, I, sorry, I lost you for a second. Oh, he's just like, what, what don't I understand about mm-hmm. the relationship? This was like round when the Me Too era things sort of really took hold and was happening here in the States. And she was just like, you can beat me up. Like you're always bigger than me. Like there's always this, like there is this natural or, or this sort of built in sort of difference that you just don't ever have to think about. And it's like, yeah, that's true. Like I don't ever, I'm never worried about those sorts of things. And so when I hear people tell stories in the States about, you know, harassment or whatever, I'm, I'm always trying to be like, what, what are the things I, I don't naturally have to think about? And because I, at a place like Yale, you know, I'm curious how your experiences were different at Yale from Miami, because at Yale, the thing I noticed was that it was so small. The, the studio was so small that like, there just wasn't any room for misogyny or sexism or, you know, if I if we told Ayano that she couldn't play crash symbols because she was too tiny, that meant that one of us had to, and we were playing in thirty five other ensembles. Like that wasn't, or if we needed timpani moved, it's like sorry, Gwen, like grab the other grab the lugs because we got to take these things up these rickety ass stairs to get them over to Henry Hall, you know, or over to to Sprague. Like, so there's a part of me that just is like if every percussion studio could only be limited to six people and it had to be half and half, I think we, as a, we, as a species would learn a hell of a lot about each other. And, you know, we might get along a little bit better with each other. I honestly don't think that it's about the size. Mm. I think that it's about the teacher setting a certain example mm. Mm. because I see this, you know, I've studied in, Four different universities, actually, mm. um, because I did one year in Poland. Then I moved to uh, Miami, where I finished, where I did my bachelor. Then I started my master at Yale, but I finished it actually in Austria. And wherever I was going, I kind of saw this pattern that um, you know, kind of like when you say when you have a dog and the dog takes on the owner's personality, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. because they followed their example. I kind of feel like it's like this with students and the teacher. Like mm-hmm. whatever example or whatever vibe the teacher is giving towards other students, the students will follow and they build a certain culture that where even if a completely different person joins in, the majority is creating this kind of an atmosphere of like, Mm -hmm. this is okay. And this is not okay. Mm -hmm. This is the type of things that we do, or Mm -hmm. this is the the no-nos here. And I think that because both in Miami, in Miami, there was a much bigger studio, but I also felt like everybody was very respectful Mm -hmm. of each other and everyone, you know you never had this kind of treatment like oh you're worse than me you know because everybody knew that like we worked our asses off to like be where we are and we all deserve to be here and we have mutual respect for each other regardless of our nationality sexuality gender um color of our skin whatever there is you know like because i think that both svet and mad and later on bob were just so respectful of everybody, also of their students. Like, especially with Sved and Matt, I always felt like they were treating me really like a grown-up mm-hmm. and not just as a student. Mm-hmm. And this kind of respect and not allowing for any kind of... Because I remember when I was my first year in Miami, um, you know, we also had at some point a studio full of big personalities and, you know, everybody has their own opinion. Everybody has a way to do. And at one point I, I was in this rehearsal, we were playing rain tree mm-hmm. and I was talking to this guy um, 
and we started arguing, you know, about like something about the piece. I don't remember. And we like raised our voices, you know, and Svet walked in because he was just like by accident at a university on, it was like a Saturday or Sunday. He walked in because he heard our raised voices and he was like, what is happening? And I'm like, why are you yelling at each other? And then, you know, I felt like really embarrassed, but he like sat down with us. and was like, we have to talk about it. You know, we have to find a solution to speak respectfully to each other and voice our ideas, respecting the other person's voice, you know? And I really felt like, oh my God, like, I feel like I'm in kindergarten, you know, like I should know better than, you know, act like this. But this I found extremely helpful, you know, um, and it was very respectful. And we ended up, you know, on a good note. And then we ended up playing a great project, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it really came out with a lot of love afterwards because, you know, Svet stepped in and was like, I'm going to be a parent today <laughs> and I'm just going to teach you like how to politely discuss and argue. Well, this is one of the things that I mean, this is what one of the things I got out of Yale in particular was the like when the temperature is turned up to a certain point in a studio in terms of what the expectations are for chamber music or whatever. Yeah, I was the thing with Bob. His expectations were like what he wanted you to learn in a week or in a month. In my case was like just an insurmountable amount of stuff. And so the temperature just gets turned up on everybody Mm -hmm. and so we had we had tons of band fights. The number of times I yelled at Svet in a rehearsal, like the, when you talk about raising your voice, the year that I was in, at, at school with Svet, there was one one time we were rehearsing overnight because Bob like called us and was like, "I'm coming in tomorrow morning," and we're like, "We got to pull an all nighter," and so we rehearsed all night. And I just remember at one point being like, "Svet, you don't know your notes. You're wasting all of our time." <laughs> And he was just like, well, screw you, Quillen. And, he, you know, oh. like we had, a, you know, we had the same fight you're having. You know, I had it, too, but with mm-hmm. Svet, you know, but mm-hmm. like because you're forced to be in those. That's why that's why for me, why I said the thing about a small studio, like I feel like if we had the funding in the United States to have like every studio be this like size where you can't hide. That's the other thing about large percussion studios is you can sort of if there's a discomfort or there's a, there's some, there's an energy in the room, you can sort of like just avoid it. And when there's six people in the studio, you can't, and you have to work through the stuff. And I learned so much about how to communicate with people, what I do wrong in a rehearsal, like where my insecurities are. And when I sort of get defensive in a rehearsal, I still do it to this day, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm better at it because of my time at Yale. Um, no, I completely agree. And you are right. Yeah. At, at Yale, there is no escaping. Like you have to solve it. Like you cannot just like find your group of people that you, you know, maybe you'll get along with better and just ignore, you know, like somebody because however the studio is big enough that, you know, uh, maybe you won't run. I, I mean, however, I was never in a really big studio. Like I know that some mm-hmm. universities in mm-hmm. Texas have like hundred people, you know, in a percussion studio. Mm-hmm. I never experienced because uh, in Miami, however, it was not so big. I think it was maybe like 15, 20 people, including Mm -hmm. uh, people who are like different majors and they were just um, taking some percussion lessons. Um, But still, yeah, that's that's true. But yeah, this is also why I really wanted from the very beginning to go to Yale because I was so in love um, in Svet's teaching style Mm -hmm. And that I really wanted to meet the person that made him this way, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of like made him quote unquote, where he got this inspiration to Mm. be this way. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I want to meet my grand mentor, you know, my granddad teacher, you know, like get it directly from the source. Right, right. And it was just so clear for me at this moment, like, ah, now I understand. Mm. Um, why he decided to do certain things a certain way. And of course, Sved also had to adjust with time because he came, I think, first in Miami expecting that he's going to be like Bob and things are going to work just like they do in Peabody at Yale. Mm -hmm. But um, of course, University of Miami was a bit different because it is a giant university, which the music school is just, you know, like a tiny bit of it. And everybody has so much other things on their plate. Um, 
it's not like a conservatory or an elite school where you just have grad students. So I think that he had to adjust to this reality because mm-hmm. there were, you know, so many people that come and they also wanted to be in the fraternity or join a marching band or do something, things that, you know, Bob's students like don't even consider. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that this took uh, a bit of getting used to it, but I still I really appreciated um, the whole energy and the idea of creating this studio, the, the way the, stu- the percussion studio is and the way everybody interacts with each other. Well, it's important you mentioned the word culture um, in terms of like what radiates out from a teacher. And, and the one thing that I think, Bob, that's that I think every no, very few teachers do is sort of give you tell you the final piece of the puzzle which is like oh cool you want to be a college professor you think you want to do it like i'm doing it you do understand it took me 16 years to mm. get it to this point so like your first year give yourself at least five years before you even have a glimmer of like mm. what you what you actually want to do with this and and i think in i say that in just a little bit but like now i think svet and matt can look at their program in florida and be like okay this looks like ours now. This has a yes, this yes. has a little bit more of a like it moves like they want it to move a little bit easier now. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for what's anyway, just on the gender thing, the thing for me too that I I, I spent my entire graduate studies being compared to two of the best female percussionists in the world. Ayano. What do you mean compared to? Meaning I like there were so many timpani classes, Maria, where I had to sit next to Gwen. Do you know Gwen? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. where Bob would be like, "Okay, everybody, turn your backs," and they and he'd be like, "All right, let's hear option A," and it'd be me, and I'd be like, "Buga diga 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 dum diga dum diga dum diga 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 diga," and then be like option B, and then Gwen would play, and everybody'd be like, "Gwen." So for oh, two years, damn. and then I would be like across from Ayano on sextet playing vibraphone or something. And then Bob would be like, hmm, Josh, I just need you to have a couple one hour sessions with Ayano. And I'm like, I didn't come here to study with Ayano, but I guess I should because she clearly is better than me at almost everything. And I think the only thing I'm better than her at is being a dorky white guy from Ohio. Like that's about all I have on her. And so like this, uh, the the two most intimidating figures for me as a student growing up were Ayano and Gwen. So like, anyway, I, for what, for what that's worth. Well, Maria, let me ask you, um, you are a power lifter as well. Well, unfortunately not this year because we're going on already. I don't know how many months of closed gyms here. And yeah, it's I I got into the lockdown almost exactly one year ago mm-hmm. in probably the best shape I have ever been. <laughs> I was lifting heaviest I have ever lifted. And then just suddenly, you know, because at home I don't have enough space or equipment mm-hmm. to, to continue this. You know, I have some bands, uh, like some elastic things and whatever, you know, um, but nothing to compare to lifting heavy weights. And I feel like I probably lost uh, 10 kilos of just muscles, you know, like during this lockdown. But what's yeah. your what's your deadlift? Well, honestly, I don't even remember anymore. Like now <laughs> I, I would be happy if I can lift my own butt, you know, like, well, my, my, it's, it's so ridiculous. My wife is a, she, she was in a similar, she did a lot of powerlifting and I did strong, I, I did strongman stuff for a while. And then, Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know. Yeah. That's what I, that's how I got into sort of weight training initially. This was probably six years ago and I really enjoyed the strongman stuff. It was like task based, you know, I had to like, you had mm-hmm. to put a stone up on a thing. And it was like, yeah. Do you know Mariusz Pujanowski? Mm-mm. He was a strongman for many years in a row. Uh, he's a Polish strongman. Okay. All right. But again, Polish, Polish lifter, and he's an inspiration. I gotta say again, just, I don't want to paint with too broad of a cultural brush here, but like Eastern Europeans and the Nordic people have have the strongman world sort of cornered like there's there's you know they're um but but i saw there was a woman at the gym who was doing the the atlas stones and she went and she lifted it up and caught her ring on the thing and like tore her the top of her finger off and i was like i i can't even no i can't that's my career i'm so i stopped like that day stopped lifting weights and went and 
did hot yoga. Like that's then, then <gasps> since then that's like all I've done is hot yoga, but that's all been shut no. down too. Um, so yeah, we, yeah, I mean, I know that accidents happen, but you know, like, honestly, uh, a few weeks ago I had an accident in the kitchen. I cut off the, the tip of my thumb, mm-hmm. just cutting carrots. And it was like really a big chunk of meat, you know, <laughs> like by now it, because it was, I don't know, maybe a couple months ago, it grew back completely. Um, but still, you know, my initial panic was like, oh my God, what if I cut out more than this? Like, this is exactly in the spot where I hold my sticks, you know, Mm -hmm. like, what am I doing? So honestly, like it can happen doing anything. And what am I supposed to like, I will stop cooking now forever. (laughs) Well, I, yeah. And fear, but um, yeah, I understand the if, fear. You know, it's not not to say I'll never get back into it, but hot yoga is just way safer, and mm-hmm. I, you know, than than anything else. Um, well, Maria, let me ask you just a final question here. Like, what kind of stuff are you working on right now? Like, I, I've been seeing some stuff posted online. Is it your husband you, that you play with? You, no, what, no, what? no. It's uh, so basically me and my best friend. Um, he we created an ensemble uh called infinity movement mm-hmm. and it's a kind of collective with the different programs different projects different ensembles um we work with dancers with artists videographers also different kind of uh, instruments like violin guitar bass mm-hmm. etc but every program that we have created was kind of around percussion so percussion with something mm-hmm. and uh it started just as a duo me and him but we didn't want to limit it to just a duo um so we decided call it a movement not like infinity percussion duo but like infinity movement Mm. uh, because we want to stay open in the future for whatever comes and so our newest project is a quintet which is uh four percussionists and a bass player Mm. and we did uh some recordings uh this summer and we're planning on recording an album this year. And actually, this I am extremely pumped about because this project was the silver lining of the COVID mm. Uh, mm. lockdown for us. Because we were always, you know, he, uh, my, my friend, he's a professor at a university here in Austria. What's his name? Um, his name is Alex uh, Georgiev. Georgiev. Okay. Uh, he's also Bulgarian because mm-hmm. Bulgarians follow me my whole life and I love it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so uh, basically, you know, he has a full-time job, but I'm a freelancer. So how, and he's also a, um, on top of being, he's also a freelancer. Mm. So, you know, when we talk about doing a, a project of our own, it kind of always falls a bit behind, you know, like we say like, oh, we'll do it when we have time. Right. And then you kind of never do have time right. until one year ago, we were forced to have time for everything in the world. So we said like, okay, no more excuses. We make a plan and we make deadlines for ourselves that by the end of this week, by the end of the, this month, we get this and this done. Right. So we started with creating uh, about a two hour program worth. Of, well, let's say our 40 minutes worth of music uh, for this quintet. And this was mostly arrangements mm-hmm. uh, of um, music uh, such as, I don't know, jazz, bluegrass, such as Avishai Cohen, or, um, but also, uh, for example, we did a lot of stuff from Andy Akiho mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. that we arranged for this group. And, uh, but after we did this, we were like, okay, this project has a huge potential, but honestly, we don't want to be a cover band. So let's do something about it. So we called up a friend of ours who's a drummer, but also a phenomenal composer. Mm-hmm. And we commissioned a work um, from him uh, for our album. But also both me and Alex, we sat down and we said like, okay, we're going to start composing music. And we will somehow learn it in a way. And we discovered that like, man, we can do it. Like we mm-hmm. have it in us. Like I never tried writing music before, mm. but now I was so motivated, you know, like this project has a huge potential, but I don't want to be a cover band. You know, mm. I want us to create something new. And I discovered that like, man, I can really write music, something which I'm really happy with and proud of. 
And I think it's going to sound great. So we are really looking forward to finish all of the music and um, get it down on an album. Uh, awesome. So this is the the priority now, other than, of course, doing some, some other people's projects. And we also, uh, a couple of years ago, we also with, with Alex, we started a company which makes mallets. Oh, okay. And we first focused on making marimba mallets because we were both always quite unhappy with what's available on the market. Mm-hmm. So we decided to take this opportunity to make something which makes us happy. And then we uh, ended up also collaborating with uh, some young artists here in Europe to make signature series for them Mm. that they are happy with. And we ended up making really killer vibraphone and marimba mallets, uh, which I'm extremely proud of. And it is a small company because everything we do is uh, handmade. Mm -hmm. We don't have anything in stock. Everything is always customized because everybody has something else they want yeah, like yeah. like oh can it be a little heavier or a little longer or a bit like in between these models or something and uh, this is the thing that we can offer what's the name of the company um, it's called infinity percussion okay so infinity movement was like the first artist of infinity percussion Got it. okay um and yeah it's the it's the same team and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really happy with it. I play basically exclusively their mallet, like our mallets now for marimba and the vibraphone and setup, um, because it's just another animal to be able to create something with the image of like this is the sound that I'm looking for, mm. and I'm gonna make a mallet that makes this sound. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I I'm I'm glad that you sort of laid out some of the things that came up sort of like the pandemic allowed you to do rather than thinking of the pandemic restricting, like the pandemic has not allowed you to lift weights, but it has, it has allowed you to do these other things. And um, like had the pandemic never happened, maybe you would never have written music, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's little things that like, I'm trying to do this for myself too. Like, I feel like the only thing I've done in the pandemic was podcasts, but like, actually when you look back, it's like, Oh, actually, okay. Like it doesn't feel like progress when you're doing it. But it's only after you look back and you see all of the like, all of the paths that you've sort of gone down that you, ha- you had to sort of retreat and then start a new one and you know, all those things. But uh, well, Maria, this has been really fun to chat with you, and I I appreciate you putting up with my 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 sort of rocky start uh, to the beginning what? of the podcast. No, no, I'm um, so excited to talk to you, and you are a great interviewer and a podcaster. <laughs> well, I feel very welcome. Well, I appreciate your time here, Maria. And my policy is that the door is always open. So uh, when Infi- Infinity Movement or if you're if the percussion mount line, if you guys if if there's something you have that you want to talk about because it's a new project or something has come out, mm-hmm. don't hesitate to reach out. We'll book a time. And um, maybe the next one will meet at at least noon my time. And then the next one, the third one, we can meet back again at 8 a.m. We'll switch back and forth so that, you know. No worries. No worries. <laughs> Especially that for me, it's a Saturday and I have a day off. So... For me, it's no problem at any time. Excellent. All right. Well, I hope to chat with you again soon, Maria. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And please stay safe and healthy. And mm-hmm. if you can give So Percussion an excuse to come to Poland, there some oh. of my, my favorite vodka is is from Poland. And um, <laughs> I know because I remember one time you messaged me asking like, yes. what vodka to buy and what pierogi, where to get pierogi. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm not Polish and I don't have any Polish roots, but I feel like if I could die, you have something if I could die eating pierogies and taking some of that (laughs) vodka, I think I'd be a happy man. I think that you have some great, great, great grandma there or something (laughs) like this. There's a there's a a babushka somewhere in my in my in my my lineage somewhere. But well, all right, Maria, take care, stay healthy. And I hope to see you in person at some point in the near future. Thanks. You too. And thanks so much for chatting with me and having me on here. You're quite welcome. All righty. Take it easy. Ciao, bye-bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. 
Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Aliandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.